finally got your first leadership gig, loving the new role, but feeling the pressure of your new responsibilities and all that expectation to perform. Well, don't worry, you're not alone. Crossing the chasm from a technical role to leadership, from doing stuff to managing and leading people is the toughest challenge any leader must make. Welcome to the Human Edge Show, the podcast dedicated to help you do just that, successfully cross the doing to leading chasm. Campbell Such here, Chief Chasm Crossing Guide. I've made all the mistakes so you don't have to. I want to help you learn those lessons much more easily by sharing my experiences and talking with brilliant people who have already figured it out. You'll get great actionable tips, strategies and techniques to make the transition so much easier and faster for you. Now let's get to it. Welcome to another episode of the Human Edge Show. Today I'm privileged and honoured to have Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Oak McCullough, US Army, retired with me today. Oak, welcome to the show. Fantastic to have you here. Well, thanks, Ken. Well, I'm uh, very happy that you invited me to come, and I'm excited to be on the show. Fantastic. Really, really looking forward to it. Oak McCullough was born in Loudoun. Did I say that right? Loudoun. Loudoun, Tennessee, and raised in Kirkland, Illinois. After graduating from high school, he attended the United States Military Academy at West Point. In his 23-year career in the Army, Oak McCullough held numerous leadership positions in the infantry and armor branches. He assisted in disaster relief operations for Hurricane Hugo in Charleston, South Carolina, and Hurricane Andrew in South Florida. His operational deployments included Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm in Saudi Arabia and Iraq as General's aide-de-camp, the Congressional Liaison Officer in support of operations in Bosnia, and the Operations Officer during a peacekeeping deployment to Kosovo. He held instructor positions at the U.S. Army Ordnance School, the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, the Australian Command and Staff College, University of South Alabama, and Stetson University. His last position in the Army was a three-year tour as the Professor of Military Science at the University of South Alabama, where he led the training and commissioning of lieutenants and tripled the size of the program in his three-year tour. Then he retired. And after that, retire, after retiring from the Army, he joined the staff at the Bay Area and San Francisco Bay Area Food Bank as the Associate Director. He's also the Vice Chair for Military Affairs on the Mobile Area Chamber of Commerce and a member of the Mobile Rotary International Club. He then became a Senior Military Scientist, Science Instructor and Recruiter for the Army ROTC program. And for, for anyone that sits outside of, uh, outside of the US and, and isn't familiar with the ROTC, that's the Reserve Officer Training Corps. That's right. And it's all around um, preparing and, and training uh, college students, university students to become officers in the, in the Army. Uh, and this was at Stetson University, and he's also at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Cadet Command selected LTC McCullough as the top recruiting officer out of 275 recruiters for 2019. LTC Oak McCullough published his first book in February 2021, Your Leadership Legacy, Becoming the Leader You Are Meant to Be. And I've got some stuff we'd like to cover off on that book today with you today. Absolutely, I'd love to. Thanks, Campbell. <laughs> um, he earned a Bachelor of Science degree and a Master of Military Arts and science and history. He received 31 military service awards, including the Bronze Star, eight Meritorious Service Medals, and the Humanitarian Service Medal. This, this is amazing. Uh, 
Uh, Oak is married with two children and three grandchildren. And I noticed in one of your grandchildren that their first name's Oakland, but their middle name's Maverick. That's right. Just touching on where that came from. And I'm, uh, uh, yeah. I, I've, got my, I've got a guess for where it might have, but you, you're going to have to tell us. Yeah, so, um, so I don't have a middle name. So my name is Oakland McCullough. And my wife, um, when we had our son, uh, I wanted to name him after my dad and her dad. Um, and she said, no, we're going to name him after you. And for some reason she won. I don't know why. Um, so she, I said, yeah, absolutely. But you have to give him a middle name because I'm not going to have a junior or a second or any of that. So she gave him a name and, and named him after her grandfather. So he's Oakland Vincent. So then Oak, my son, uh, he and his wife had a, had their, their baby and it was a boy and, uh, they, they named him Oakland Maverick. Um, that that young man will never be able to hide. I mean, with those two names, he, he's he's ne- everybody's going to remember him, um, which can be good or bad, <laughs> depending on what you just did. Um, but he, my son, wasn't the one who came up with the middle uh, name. It was uh, his wife is the one who decided that that was the name that she wanted, and because uh, she didn't really, I don't think she really wanted to name him Oakland, but he wanted Oakland, so she got to pick the middle name. Right. Wow, amazing! All right, my guess was it had something to do with the movie Top Gun, but hey, that was just yeah. Well, a- we're an army family, so probably not. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's the opposition, right? Yeah, that's the dark side. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Um, so, just to just to kick things off, um, I was going to ask you about something that not many people would know about you, but I I suspect that we probably just covered that one off. Um, is there is there anything that that you would say that they will tell us that so, there not too many people have known? Yeah, so I I grew up in northern Illinois, so I grew up in farmland. Um, I always tell people the the highest point in the area that I grew up in and this is is an overpass. I mean, it's, it's as flat as a tabletop. It's all cornfields. So uh, I I grew up working on farms all my life. I started working when I was twelve years old, bailing hay for a dollar an hour, and uh, worked worked on farms until the time I went in the army when I was graduated from high school, 18. I graduated on the 6th of June. And I reported to West Point on the 29th of June. And that was 40 years ago, uh, 40 and a half years ago, almost now. And uh, haven't looked back. I've been in the army or associated with the army in some way or another ever since then. But before that, I was working on farms all my life. Wow. Wow. And do you ever, do you ever feel the need to get back to those grassroots do you still have a connection back there yeah well you know it's funny because i i just went back from my 40th class reunion um last week two weeks ago and uh and there was a young lady who helped me get into west point she typed all my back when we didn't have computers we actually typed stuff (laughs) uh she volunteered to type everything for me for my application and everything and if it hadn't been for i keep telling people all the time it hadn't been for her i probably wouldn't have gotten into west point and I hadn't seen her since the day I graduated from high school. So I went to her father's farm because every weekend she and her sister and her brother come back and work on the farm under dad's farm. And I went there and I opened the door. And when I opened the car door, that smell of that farm hit me. And I was like, just all kinds of flashbacks from when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. Amazing, isn't it? The, yeah. The smell is one of those amazing things that brings back memories like just about nothing else does. Absolutely. Yeah. To um, just to change the tech slightly on that, um, 
Can you cast, you, you went to Westport, uh, to, to West Point, um, and, and presumably there was a process that you went through, but can you cast your mind back to your first foray into leadership and what, how did that happen and what was the result and how did you feel and, and what was perhaps some of the, the missteps that you made then that you look back on now and go, well, heck, if I hadn't done that or if I'd, if I'd known that then, <laughs> based on yeah. what I know now, I'd have done it differently? Yeah, well, you know, I, I had had some leadership positions in high school, you know, captains of teams and, you know, president of student government. And I was, you know, an officer in a couple of clubs, whatever. So I'd had a little bit of leadership, just dabbled in it and what we would, you know, what what little bit of leadership that actually is. But, you know, once I got to West Point and to ROTC, because I only did two years at West Point, then I left and uh, finished up in ROTC. And, and I had... So here, here's an interesting story. Um, as a freshman, a plebe at West Point, you have almost no freedoms. You know, you used to have, to, I don't know what they do today, but we used to have to walk the side of the hallway. You couldn't walk down the middle of the hallway and we have to eat the square meals and, you know, all kinds of things like that. So plebe parent weekend, all the upperclassmen leave campus, every single one of them. And it's just freshmen and their parents come on campus. And so all the freshmen get their first experience in leadership positions. And I got to be the command sergeant major for our battalion. Why they picked that for me is beyond my imagination, but they did. And so one night we were sitting there playing. We were, I, I played baseball in college and I had a roommate that played hockey and I had another one that played lacrosse. And so there were three of us in there and we're talking about it. And, and we said, well, let's, let's, invite the floor, the company below us, the floor below us up, and let's play hockey out in the hallway. Being a leader should have, alarm bells should have been going off, but they didn't. And so, so we're sitting there, we're, we got sticks and we're slapping the puck down the hall and making all kinds of noise and checking people into the, into the uh, hall, you know, the side of the wall. And I, I'm sit, standing there and the puck goes by me and I turn around and there's somebody standing there and I check them into the, into the wall. And all of a sudden I hear this stop. And I turn around and it's not a cadet. It's a captain in the United States army. <laughs> <laughs> and he says to, says to me, he says, or he says to everybody, he says, so who's it, who's it, uh, the, the company commander. And I, I told him and he said, well, where is he? I said, well, he's not in right now. And he said, well, who's the XO? And I told him and he said, well, where is he? I said, I don't know if he's not here right now. And he said, well, who, then who's in charge here? I said, well, I'm the command sergeant major. And he said, then you're in charge. Come see me tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> so first leadership experience should have known better than to do something like that um, on, on a floor in a military um, environment. But it all turned out okay. You know, he 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 was big and mean, and he reported me to my TAC officer, and I reported to my TAC officer, and he said, "Oak," he said, or he said, "Cadet McCullough." He didn't say Oak. He said, "Cadet McCullough, I only got one question for you." I said, "Yes, sir. What is it?" He said, "Did you guys beat the team below us?" And, and I said, "Yes, sir. You, I, we did." And he said, "Get out of my office." <laughs> <laughs> That show, that shows a, a level of leadership maturity, though, right? Because to the letter of the law, that would have been the the, the worst thing he could have done, and yet you probably learned a lesson out of that. As a that's result right. Of that. That's, that's right. Uh, that, you know, that's, that goes back to one of the lessons in in my book. Results <laughs> matter. If if you get results, you can get you can ask for forgiveness in some things. <laughs> 
Well, you've mentioned your book, so I've got a, I've got a, I've had a, I've had a read through the book, um, and and I've got some questions or some some thoughts and some ideas. I wouldn't mind just digging into because there's some there's some absolute gold in there um, from what I've seen. And the first thing I just wanted to touch on was out of was out of uh, one of the early chapters in the book, um, and it's this two juxtaposition of these two ideas where you head the chapter up. I, I believe um, it's not about you. It's all about you, which are you know two competing ideas. Could you just talk to us a little bit about that and what that means and what what its implications are and how someone might use that in a new leadership role to help them make that that move across the chasm into uh, from a doing role into a leadership role and start moving up the the leadership skill path. Yeah. So um, so I, I've 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 believed this for many years that it's not about you. I, I'm a firm believer in selfless service and servant leadership. And I believe that's the, the answer. That's the right way to lead people. And, um, and so I, I always tell people, you know, we don't, we don't make you the leader so that you get more privileges, so that you get, make more money, so you live in a nicer house, so you drive a nicer car. Some of those things happen. Good. That's great. But that's not why we made you the leader. We made you the leader so that you could better serve those people who work for you and those people you work for and your organization. And I always put it this way, you know, again, we commission lieutenants, second lieutenants in the United States Army out of our programs. And uh, and I always tell them the day they get commissioned, I say, okay, enjoy today because today is all about you. You made it. You got to, you know, you, you've gotten through that part of your life. You're now an officer in the United States Army. You have every right to be proud and to to celebrate that achievement. I said, but remember, after we pin those bars on your shoulder and you celebrate today, tomorrow when you wake up, it is never ever about you ever again. It's about the people that you that work for you, the people you serve, the people that you work for. It's about your your unit, your organization, the army, the country. Then, if we have time, we might talk about you, but only if we have time after all that, because it's not about you. That piece of it, it's not about you. It's all about you and how you do those things, how you become that servant leader, how you treat the people who work for you, how you build that trust and culture in that unit to be successful. That's what leadership is about. It's not about what you want. It's about the good of the people and the organization as a whole. And if you understand that, then you will get your benefits if you understand that piece of it. Because if you take care of the people who work for you and you make the organization successful, then you're going to get your rewards if that's really what you want. I, I tell people there were times I didn't even read my officer evaluation report. It didn't matter to me. That's not why I did what I did. I didn't do my job so I could get a nice evaluation report. I could have cared less. I did my job because I was helping people. I was helping the organization. I was helping the country. And it was all about selfless service to me. I believe that 100%. Yeah. And, and interesting, isn't it? Because the, the, the evaluation report is one of those things that that drops out of a really good value, evaluation report drops out of doing everything else really well. And so it's a, it's a, it, it's not the driver for what you do. It's the result it of what be. you do. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and it kind of goes back to like uh you know, again, I'm an athlete, played baseball, basketball, and American football. And um, and I can always remember my coaches saying, 
Let's get back to basics. In football, it was blocking and tackling. In baseball, it was fielding and throwing. And, and the whole point of that, and I, I talk about that as a leader, the whole point of that is if you can do the basic things, the simple things well, then you can move on to doing difficult things and, and trying to do those. And those become much easier if you're doing the little things right. And, and so that was always my focus. Get my people to do the little things well, and then, then we can move on and start trying to do bigger and better things. Yep. Wow. So for a new leader stepping into it, so for someone who's been who's never been in leadership before, never been managing people before, they're in their first role as a leader and a manager. What are some of those little things that you think are the big things, I guess, um, that they might focus on to really help them get, get off to a good start? Yeah, I think I think one of them, one of the most important things is communication. And I think we we forget that sometimes as a leader, you know, because especially in the military, unfortunately, some people think that because I'm a leader, you got to do what I say no matter what. And and pretty much people have to, but how well they do it is will depend on on how you treat them. And that isn't the right way to treat people. I don't care who you are, and I don't care how high of a rank you are. Um so I always tell people communication is absolutely essential, especially in today's world. Um, you know, when we were young men and men, men doing things, you know, I never asked why. People told me to do something. I said, OK, let's do it. Today, young men and women want to know why. And that's not bad. It's just that's the way they've grown up. That's the way they are. And they expect to, for you to not only tell them what you want, but why you want it. And, and that's okay. I, I don't have a problem with that. It, it took a little bit to get used to that, um, but but I, I I don't have any problem with that. So I think communication is one of the key things that you have you have to get down. And communication is more than just talking, and it is a two way street. And a lot of leaders don't understand that, especially young leaders don't understand that it is a two way street. If you don't believe that communication is a two way street, I'm going to argue that you're not a leader, but you are a dictator. So what I tell people is you, you need to use everybody's talent. And the only way you're going to do that is open that line of communication, a two-way street, so that everybody gets their say. You don't have to use what everybody comes up with. You don't have to use any of it, but at least listen to what they say. And if you do that, I think that young leaders will, will do better than, than, they, than they do if they, if they believe that it's a one-way street. And the other thing that I think young leaders have to do that sometimes we don't do very well as young leaders is you have to build that trust with the people that, that you are leading. Um, they have to understand or they have to believe that number one, they are a valued member of the organization and you do that through the communication piece of it and, num- and how you take, how you treat them and take care of them. And number two, they have to understand, they have to believe that they're uh, they have a say in the, in the organization. And if, and if you can get to that point where they believe that you, that they're a part of the organization, they believe they have a say in it and they believe that you uh, have their best interest and the organization's best interest at part, not your own best interest, then I think a young leader is on the right track to being very successful. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You talk about having their best interests at heart. One of the things that I, learned probably midway through my leadership career that I'd been doing, I guess, 
uh, unconsciously, unintentionally. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I guess I always had a a, um, uh, a a keen interest in in helping other people. But when one of the one of the <laughs> one of my early tough roles was to make someone redundant, and uh, from their role, and at their going away speech, if you like, they stood up and they said, well, I haven't met many leaders in my life that I both respect and like. Um, but Campbell's one of them. And uh, and I remember being quite taken aback by that because I would have thought that would have been one of the toughest things that, um, the least likely things that someone was being made redundant would say. And I reflected on it and it finally dawned on me that the key thing around that was that he always thought, you know, this was the, and it didn't really dawn on me till years later that he, because I'd seen it happen a number of times in my career, was that he truly felt that I had his best interests at heart. Yeah. And, um, and, and that just made a massive difference. So how do you go about helping someone in your team to, to grow that trust and to, and to really truly understand that you've got their best interests at heart? What, what do you do to build that? So, so I, think, I think you have to prove it in what you do. Like I, I use an example. Um, I, I've heard people say, you know, in the Army, we had inspections. We had big training events coming up and we had things that we had to, had to do that we were going to be evaluated on quite, quite um, that were quite important. And I heard people say, well, I, my NCO, this NCO needs to go to the academy so that he can move on to his next rank. But I, I, I'm going to push that down the road because I really need him during this inspection or this training event. And I was like, are you kidding me? You're going to put that in, in place of this young man's career where he's going to put food on his family's, you know, on the plate of his family, where he's going to, I said, your trust with that young man is gone forever. There is no way he is ever going to trust that you have his interest at heart. Um, You you have to treat people the way you would want to be treated. And that is certainly not how you would treat people. Um, And I think the other piece of that is that you just really have to let them you have to listen to what they have to say. You have to get to know them, not not uh, in a friendly manner because you're the leader and they're not. You know, they work for you, but they have to understand that that you do care about them and their families. And one of the best leaders I ever worked for, he ended up being a three star general. But when I worked for him, he was a lieutenant colonel and he taught me the importance of listening to people. And he would ask me when I'd come in the morning, you know, I'd meeting probably three, two or three times a week. I'd meet with him as we were walking in the hall. We walked by and he'd say, so how you doing, Oak? And it wasn't one of those things where I could just say fine and walk by. That wasn't what he wanted. He actually stopped and I stopped and we talked for two, three, four minutes, whatever, maybe five. And, and he actually asked questions and asked questions about my wife and my kids and wanted to know how things were going. And that stuck with me that that is a very important thing is to get to know the people that work for you and make sure they understand that they're important. And it's important that you want to know how they're doing, not just I'm fine. How are things going? And I think that is one of the things that that's a way that you can make sure that people understand that you really do care about them. You care, yeah, that's right. And and the interesting thing with that too is that you know you talked about not necessarily being uh, having a relationship in a friendly way. You you may you may have a friendly relationship with your with your direct reports with the people that report to you, but it's understanding what what they are as a person, understanding their their life, 
and understanding what that because their their role that when they interact with you that's only part of their life and they've got perhaps they've got a family whatever that might look like but they've got a life outside of the army outside of their role for you and by better understanding that and what they do and what motivates them and and being able to connect can really help you build that trust and build um the, the likelihood that they're going to hang around that they're going to be there that they're going to be feel motivated and and um and and help you to achieve all the things that you want for your team. Yeah, and you and you'll know when you've reached that. I mean, in in the army, it was really simple. You know, I, as as people would re-enlist, if they asked you to do the enlist, the oath for the enlist re-enlistment, then you knew that you had that they believed in you, that you had made an impact in their life. If they asked that you, you know do those kinds of things for, for them or, or do something for their family. Um, those are the kinds of things that, that really made you feel like, okay, I made a difference here. That person really believes that, that I do care about them. Uh, and, and that's, yeah. And it isn't just about making them believe it because they, they can tell whether you're faking it or not. Yeah. It is that they really do believe that you care because they can tell you care. And, and if you don't care, if you're just faking it, they'll, they'll figure that out very quickly. Yeah, that's right. And, and if, um, yeah, there's a pretty powerful BS meter, right. That people, that people have and it swings and it's, it's easily activated. And, and I guess the reality is if you truly don't care about people and you don't believe that they're there to be, um, for you to have the best interest at heart, then perhaps, being a leader isn't for you and maybe oh, it's absolutely wrong. You know? Go do something else. <laughs> go and do something else. How do you, how do you go, just thinking about that, how do you go about selecting people that would make good leaders? Yeah, so I, I do, I, I get to evaluate a lot of people uh, as high school seniors coming into the program. Um, and I get to do, I do an interview with them and I ask them some, just some very simple questions. You know, I just talk to them one-on-one like we are, just ask them some questions, how, you know, what, what were your hobbies in high school? What's your hobbies in high school? Uh, those kinds of questions. Um, what, what do they want to major in in college? What, why do they want to major in that? Why do they want to go to this college versus that college? Why do they want to join Army ROTC? So there's just some very general type questions that I ask everybody. I ask everybody, what's the last book they read for entertainment? And when I get somebody who says, well, I don't read, then I start to... Uh, uh, alarm bell goes off in my head uh, because leaders read. I mean, that's just the way it is, uh, at least in my opinion. Um, and, and so, and then I asked some very specific questions about leadership. I said, so out of all the things that you think a leader does, what do you think the most important thing is? And I, that's always interesting to hear their point of view on that. Um, and then, um, and then I ask them uh, what's the hardest decision they've ever had to make. and Probably the most the harder part of that question is why did they make that make the decision that they did? What went what led to that decision? And and some that's that can stump some people sometimes. Yeah. Um, so then I just kind of take all that into into uh, account. And the last piece of it is just the communication piece. If they can sit there and talk to me one on one, then they they got they have the possibility they have the the capability of being a leader if if they can if they really struggle just to ha- carry the conversation 
then uh, again, an alarm bell goes off and I kind of wonder whether or not that really needs to be a leader or not. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so but it, some people, sometimes they'll surprise you, Campbell. <laughs> when I ran the ROTC program at the University of South Alabama, I had a young man who came in as a freshman, came into my program. And I thought to myself, that young man is never going to make it. Um, that young man ended up being my battalion commander, the number one cadet in my program. And he is now a major in the United States Army. And he's doing great things for the United States Army. So, you know, sometimes they'll surprise you. Sometimes the, the light bulb goes off in their head and they finally figure it out and they they turn into something that you would never have imagined that they would. And that, that's a good feeling. It really is. Yeah, that's that that's awesome, isn't it? And and perhaps that's that's one of the, the things around leadership as well as being humble enough to know or being um open to the fact that you might not be right in having made a decision or around your feelings and, and yeah, have an to, opinion and that's what, <laughs> that's what it is it's opinion it's an opinion that's right um just going back to your book again oak um what in chapter four you talk about handwritten notes and i i know from my own personal experience that the leaders that i've that, that have <laughs> written me handwritten notes for maybe a Christmas card, maybe a anniversary of um, having been in a particular role for amount of time, or maybe just something that was was, was recognising something that I've done have made, have been really quite impactful and, and special and certainly things that I remember. Uh, what's your take on handwritten notes? Because you do mention that in the book. Yeah, so I, I'm a firm believer in handwritten uh, notes, and I believe the term I say in the book is Never underestimate the never underestimate the power of a handwritten note, um, and I believe that. I mean, it it is huge. It can be a huge impact on people to get a handwritten note from you. Um, and I I learned that early on. I you know as a lieutenant, I had a general one time who, when I got promoted from second lieutenant to first lieutenant, a general officer, two star general, took the time to write a handwritten note. Congratulations, Oak. Uh, on your promotion. And, and, it, and it was a promotion that most people get, I mean, from, from second lieutenant to first lieutenant, but he took the time to do that. And he ended up being a mentor of mine. And, and <clears throat> I don't know why, but he did. He took an interest, interest, me in, in, interest in me and uh, helped me throughout my career. But I'll use an example. Uh, here, here's a perfect example of a handwritten note. So when the people who are competing for Army ROTC scholarships here in the United States, high school seniors who are competing, when they win one, they get a letter from Cadet Command. It's a typed letter, says congratulations, whatever. So I have a bunch of people on my list who win a national scholarship that I've been talking to for five, six, seven, eight months, maybe even a year, who may not have gotten offered a scholarship to my school, but they still got offered a scholarship, which is a huge deal. So I still write them a handwritten note. Everybody on my list who gets a scholarship, whether they're coming to my school or not, I write them a handwritten note. And I wrote this one young man who I really, really wanted in my program. Um, I wrote him a handwritten note saying, congratulations. And I know you're going to do, you're not coming to my school, but you're going to do great things at whatever school you decide to go to. And uh, he calls me up like two weeks later and he said, how do I transfer my scholarship from this school to your school? And I said, well, it's an easy process. I said, but why do you want to do that? We were your third choice on your list and you got your number one choice. And he said, because of your handwritten note, he said, I haven't even received a phone call from the other two. And you took the time 
not only to call me, but to send me a handwritten note. And I wasn't even coming to your school. He said, I'm coming to your school. That's the power of a handwritten note. Wow. That, that is a, that's a fantastic story. If you're listening to this or watching this, take note as a leader. The power of that is immense. And I've experienced it personally. That, that's awesome. Just to change tack slightly, Oak, one of, the, one, of the, one of the biggest steps that a new leader ever makes in their career, or biggest changes, is to go from doing, doing stuff to leading and managing people. The next big challenge is then stepping up into a leading leader's role. And um, one of the challenges with leading leaders is that it, you then have to bring on new leaders into those roles. And, and often it may be with a lack of understanding of what that new leader, you may have forgotten, or maybe you just never really worked it out, what that new leader needs in terms of support that you've just appointed or promoted or hired into that role. What would you say to leaders of leaders that would help them give their new leaders the best chance of success and the least chance of struggling or, or failing? Yeah. So, um, first of all, I, I, I'm a firm believer, and I and I got into a discussion with somebody on this on LinkedIn, and they don't necessarily agree with me. But leaders don't let their people fail. You can make mistakes, but it's a leader's job to make sure that people don't fail. Um, and you know, we can debate <laughs> that all you want, but it, in my profession, you don't let people fail because when people fail, people die. And so, I'm I'm just a firm believer: leaders don't let people fail. They they Allow mistakes and mistakes happen. We're all, nobody's perfect, but, but failure cannot be an option. But what, what I tell people is if when you move into that leader where you're leading leaders, you still have to remember a couple of things. Number one, you still have to train people. You have to train those leaders. And the way you train them, in my opinion, to be successful, number one, you have to make sure that that new leader who's stepping in there understands the culture of your organization. And, and that doesn't happen by accident. It happens by, by having uh, discussions, discussions with that person. It ha- happens by everybody coming together and once uh, a month or once a quarter, whatever t- you think is appropriate, depending on maybe how many new leaders you have, maybe you have it more often. If you have only one new leader or whatever, then maybe it's once a quarter, but you have a little training session, a, a development course where you, 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 maybe you read a book. Uh, you read a book and you talk about the leadership book, uh, the, the principles. Uh, you, you, but you have to develop that culture and they have to understand what that culture is. And when I go around and talk to, to organizations, because sometimes somebody will ask me, hey, Oak, you know, our, our organization's struggling. Can you come uh, spend a day with us or a two with us? And I say, sure, absolutely. And one of the first questions I ask is how's the communication in the organization? <laughs> and, and, and that's an interesting answer that I usually get. But the second question I always ask, almost always ask, is I ask the, young, the, the lower people, both the lowest and the mid-level leaders, what, what it, define for me what the culture of this organization is. And if they can't tell me that, we got a problem. Right. So you gotta, they have to understand what the culture is. And then the other piece that you have to, to remember when you are um, bringing a new leader on is you have to remember that they have to, you have to give them feedback. Um, you know, and I always use this example. If, if, I, if you're not giving me what I'm at, what I need 
as a leader, if I'm leading you and you're my junior leader and your organization isn't doing what I need it to do, and I don't tell you, then whose fault is that? That's my fault, not your fault. You may think you're giving me exactly what I need and you just don't know. And unless I tell you, you don't know. And I always tell people that communication at that point is, a you know, you have to tell people good things when they're doing it, pat them on the back, because we all like to get that pat on the back saying, good, good job. Uh, but you also have to be that person who says, okay, you're not meeting the standard here. And this is why, and this is how we're going to fix it. And if you do that with young leaders, then you give them a chance to, to, to make it, I think. Yeah. Awesome. And, and perhaps one of the, um, one of the things is also putting it back on them and saying, setting the expectation and asking them how they're going to fix it or what, what, and then, you know, you've got a chance of them buying into it. Absolutely. Because, because yeah. that's the, that's the key. I mean, you know, when we talked about communications earlier, you know, when I, when I, when I was in leadership positions, one of the things I always like to do when I had time, sometimes you don't have time. I got it. Sometimes you got to make a decision right now, you know, but when, when people are shooting at you, you don't have time to pull everybody <laughs> together and say, well, what, what do you want to do? It's go stop that bad man from shooting at me right now. Um, but, but most of the time, that's not the case. And most people don't have that problem. Most of the time, people can take the time to walk into their leaders and say, okay, here's what we got to do. Give me some ideas. And it, when they do that, then you can grab a little bit of their, this person's ideas, a little bit of that person's idea, and then maybe some of yours. And you put it together and you come up with that. Two things happens when you do that. Number one, everybody buys into it that it's their solution. It isn't Colonel McCullough's solution. It isn't Oak McCullough's solution. It's our solution because we all came up with it. And so they buy into the organization and they, they are willing to, if they're part of the solution, they're willing to go that extra mile to make sure it works. Uh, whereas if it's you, you telling them what they're going to do to fix the problem, then they may or may not. Yeah. And, it, and then there's another piece as well that I think we could you could add onto the side of that as well, which is then it also encourages them to come back next time and, and deliver any, even more in terms of options and thinking and thoughts and ideas that might help construct a really, really good solution. Absolutely. And, and you don't want you don't want it. You want them to be to the point where you don't have to ask for solutions. If they see a problem, you want to get to the point where they can walk up to you and say, hey, boss. I know, I know that we haven't talked about this and, and no, there's not a big problem yet, but I see this is going to be a problem if we don't fix it. And here's how I yeah. plan on fixing it or want us to fix it. And, and again, you got to go back to using those people who have the expertise. I always use this example and I get, use it in the book and I certainly use it during my, comp, my, my presentation. Um, my, best, my dad's best friend when I was growing up, he worked at Chrysler uh, automobile plant where they were putting together whatever car they were putting together at that plant at the time. He worked there for 36 years. Wow. During those 36 years, he was on the assembly line and all he did all day was put fenders on whatever vehicle was being built at that plant for 36 years. So if you were running that plant and there was a problem with fenders, who would you go talk to? I hope you would go talk to the guy who's been doing it for 36 years. You know what? He probably brought up that there was going to be a problem and nobody wanted to listen to it, which goes back to what we just talked about. You want to get to the point where people are bringing you 
problems and solutions before it becomes a problem. And, yeah. and you got to listen. If you don't listen, then shame on you. Yeah. Oak, we're uh, we're getting we're getting close to running out of time here. So <laughs> that's too bad. I'm enjoying this. <laughs> me too. And, and uh, I've got so much else I'd like to ask you. But just before we wrap up, um, is there anything that I haven't asked you that I should have? Well, you know, a lot of people ask me why I wrote the book and who I wrote it for. And I always tell people I wrote wrote the book because as going around talking to high school students and young college students. You know, I'd always ask them, I said, so, so what do you want to do? Uh, you know, I know you're going to get a major in this and you're going to you know, what, really what, what do you want to do and what do you want to be? And they say, well, I, I want to lead things. I want to be a leader. And I said, OK, that's great. So the world needs more leaders. We need great leaders. So, so what does that mean? What does it look like? What does it take to be a leader? And I get that deer in the headlights look or, you know, <laughs> Australians case, a, a, a kangaroo in the headlights look, whatever. Um, yeah. Had that plenty of times during my time in Australia, which was a strange uh, thing. But um, so then I, I put together a presentation that kind of laid out, which the book is kind of um, written off of the presentation because it came first. And I laid out what it takes to be a leader. So then I wrote the book for two groups of people. I wrote it for those young men and women who are aspiring to be leaders, high school, college age people and junior leaders like my son, who's a junior leader in his company who may just have just started being a leader and still don't really know all the little ins and outs of what it takes to be a leader. And then I wrote it for old people like us. Um, and, and I always tell people, look, if, if you read my book, Campbell, you're probably not going to learn a whole lot of new things. You might learn a tech, new technique on how to do something that you know how to do. But what you might do, and I've had people actually tell me that this is how it's worked for them, uh, people who have been a leader for 20, 30, 40 years, like we have, they said, you know, I was reading it and I read this little piece and I thought to myself, you know what? I used to do that really well and I don't do that well anymore. Maybe I need to dedicate some time to get back to doing that right. And because uh, this is a destination, leadership is a destination. It, uh, I mean, it's a journey. Leadership is a journey, it's not a destination. You don't wake up one day and you're now the best leader in the world. It just doesn't happen that way. We learn every single day. And the day that you don't believe that you're still learning or that you can't learn something else, you need to go do something else. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, certainly my, my reading of the book <clears throat> is the same. It's just reinforced a whole bunch of things for me. And, and the piece that really stood out for me was the handwritten notes. That's just, you know, just reminded me of the power that it's had on me and, and encourages me to, to just add that back in again when I haven't been doing it that much recently. Yeah, absolutely. Oak, this has been absolutely outstanding. If you're listening to or watching this, one of the things to remember is uh, about a book is it's an incredibly powerful, easy, low-cost way to get the distilled knowledge of a lifetime of experience uh, in an easily digestible form. And, and I'd highly encourage you to go and pick up Oak's book. I'll put a link to it in the, in the show notes below. Yeah, and Campbell, you know, what I always tell people, you know, leaders have libraries. Other people have big screen TVs. You know, yeah. if you want to lead, you got you to read. I mean, you got, you got to keep learning. That's the key to life. Yeah, I completely, completely, completely agree. Love to go down that path. Perhaps we'll do that again. I'll get you back on the show and we'll, we'll come love to, Campbell, love to, love to. This has been fantastic. Oh, thanks very much. And I uh, look forward to having you back on the show at some point. Uh, yeah, you just you. let me know when you want me back on the show, Campbell. I'm there. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me to be on your show. It's been, it's been great fun. Talk soon. Yep, thank you. 
See ya. Thanks for listening. If you have a friend or a colleague who would benefit from this episode, please pass the word along. If you have a friend or a colleague who would not benefit, but you haven't been in touch with them for a while, give them a call. iTunes reviews are great to get the word out and to help me create the show that's most useful for you. And if you're frustrated or having challenges or would like some help, guidance, assistance with your first leadership role, then check out integrationcatalyst.com in the link in the podcast notes below. Or pass this on to your boss to nudge them to get you the help you really need to cross the doing to managing chasm and get you powered up on your leadership and management journey. Oh, and if you want to make sure you don't miss an episode, hit subscribe. Until next time.